0: Okay, good morning. I'm I'm going to begin, if that's okay. Uh, my name is uh, Hanukh Waxman, and this year is entitled Righteousness and Rescue, Noach, Lot, and the Two Stories of the Flood. Uh, as my title indicates, there are quite a few things in the title. It's a long title. I would like to primarily, or at least the beginning of this year, discuss the question of the righteousness, the tzidkut, uh, the quality of the tzidkut of Noach, uh, a famous and, and well-known issue. Uh, but also, as we move along to discuss uh, quite a bit, the interaction, perhaps, of Sheikh Hazal, uh, the way Chazal understood the Torah, uh, and Shutah Shel Mikrah, the simple or plain meaning of the text. And finally, as my title indicates uh, as well, uh, where I alluded to the notion of the two stories of the flood, something about the story of the Mabul, and the fact that it seems to be somewhat repetitive, and also along the way, hopefully, somewhat of a, perhaps, an implicit response to some of the claims of biblical criticism, academic biblical criticism, regarding uh, the flood narrative, regarding the story of the Mabul. So to begin, uh, let us turn to perhaps the most obvious and uh, most famous aspect uh, of the Shur today, uh, the righteousness of, of Noah. Uh, as we well know, one of the things, or the one thing that everybody knows about Noah was that he was a tzaddik. How do we know that Noach was a tzaddik. Uh, well, it says so explicitly in the Psukim, not once, but in fact a few times. Take a look at your Daf Mekorot, uh, and if you have a Tanakh that you can follow along in that as well, but more or less everything is on the Daf Mekorot. Take a look at source number one, uh, which is Bereshit, Perek Vav, uh, and we take a look at the first Pasuk there, Perek Vav, Pasuk Tet, in source number one, which says as follows. E'la Todot Noach, is tzaddik, Noach was a righteous man. He was perfect in his generation. So Noah was a righteous man. Now, the Torah uh, goes out of its way not to tell us this just once, but it bothers to repeat it. Uh, take a look, for example, a bit later on in Perek Zion, in source number two, the very next source, Perek Zion Pasik Aleph, uh, says as follows. God said to Noach, you and all your household should come into the ark because you are a righteous man so it's really quite hard to miss this uh, Noah is a righteous man he's tamim, he's perfect etc uh, strangely enough uh, and this is what you do all know uh, and should remember there's somewhat of a controversy uh, regarding the righteousness of Noah, or how righteous uh, a man was, or uh, a man Noah was. We begin with a simple interpretation. Tzaddik means tzaddik, righteous means righteous, uh, and uh, one would have a, a very, very uh, a high regard uh, for Noah. Uh, this is the approach of many of the Pashtenei HaMikra, many of the simple interpreters of the Psukim, and most prominent amongst them, this is the position of Ramban, of Nachmanides. Let's take a look very briefly uh, at his at his comments here, we don't won't have that much time for parshanut for additional interpretive sources, but it is worthwhile just to take a look at Ramban's comment uh, at least as a foil for what is going to come afterwards. So take a look in source number three uh, for the moment, uh, where Ramban comments as follows on that very first pasuk, parak Pasuk tet, ist tamim haya yaskir akatuv zakai zakay v'shalim katov. Uh, the Torah reminds us uh, that Noah was zakai; he was uh, worthy, shaleim, whole, b'tzidkoh in his righteousness. To let us know, to tell us that he was worthy of being saved from the flood. He is not deserving of any sort of punishment. Tamim here, not in the sense of whole, but in the sense of constant. As in, uh, that's the way Rabban interprets this. Who Ki a The righteous man is the one who is innocent of justice. Hefech harasha, The opposite of the evildoer. Rabban quotes a, a supporting verse from Sefer Zvarim uh, for this approach. That Noah was innocent, righteous, whole, perfect. Well, you might ask, what about that famous phrase, B'dorotav, Tzadik B'doro, etc., doesn't that indicate something? Ramban says, that indicates absolutely nothing. In fact, it indicates the opposite of what you thought it indicated. Take a look at the next little paragraph in Ramban there in source number three, says as follows, B'dorotav, pardon me, B'dorotav, V'anachon fi lafi'apshat. What is correct in my opinion, according to the simple interpretation, Kitamol o Marshu hat Hatzadik Bidarot Haheim. The word Dorotav is used in the chumash, according to Raman as a means of contrast. It is Noach over and against, or Noach in opposition uh, to his generation. bidarotav as opposed to his generation. He is the only one who is righteous and tzadiq in his generation. And Raman goes on to say, Kitamolomashu Lvadov. He's the only sole righteous man in those generations. Uh, there is no other. And likewise, that latter verse. So it's quite simple. Noach is a righteous man. Noach is the only righteous man. And by virtue of Noach's righteousness, he is saved. His family is saved. The world is saved. Humanity is saved. God's project of creating the human race, is saved by virtue of the righteousness of Noah, And if not for the righteousness of Noah, nothing would have been saved. Nothing would have been preserved. And that, I might say, would be the simple reading of uh, these Pesukim. At least as understood by Ramban. Famously, and this will be kind of the first thorny issue we deal with in the Shiur, uh, this is not the approach of Rashi following Chazal. And let's just put this out there on the table before we begin to analyze things here. Take a look at source number four, where Rashi comments on the words, bedorotav, Yesh Doshimoto doshim oto, l'shvach. There are those who interpret it in a praiseworthy fashion. Shiloya tzadikim hayat Certainly, or alachat kal kalvachomer, we would say in the language of the Beit Midrash, that if he had lived in a generation, uh, of tzadikim, he would have been an even greater man. And there are those who are Doresh who interpreted exactly the opposite to the denigration, to the genai of Noach. In accord or relative uh, to his generation, he was a righteous man. Measured against his generation. Uh, in a relative sense, he was a righteous man. But if he had been in the generation of Avraham, he would have been considered nothing. Now this is what we call, uh, what I like to call, reading down. Uh, and this is to read down the tikkun, to read down the righteousness of Noach to a very, very low point relative uh, to his generation. Uh, he was a righteous man, but if he'd been in the door of Avraham compared to Avram Avinu or all the other tzaddikim running around there, perhaps he would have been nekshav klum, nothing, Ephes, nada. He would have been absolute nothing. Uh, now this is really quite interesting because the common denominator. Of these two deot in Chazal, uh, which are cited here by Rashi, are somewhat of a relativization or contextualization of the righteousness of Noach. Uh, you can't analyze Noach's righteousness in the abstract uh, over and against some theoretical absolute standard uh, of what constitutes righteousness and what constitutes. Uh, non-righteousness. Rather, you have to look at it in a context, uh, in a contextualized fashion, and even in a relativized fashion. And these are the two diyot. Yesheh There are Those who say, oh, uh, you, you know, uh, if he had been in a different generation, he would have been influenced uh, even better. Uh, he would have been influenced to be even better. He would have been influenced to be even greater. Uh, that's a kind of contextualization. And therefore, that's the point. Doshim l'shevach. Oh, the other opinion, Doshim l'shevach. That relative, uh, to his generation, he wasn't so bad, uh, but really, uh, he really would have been Nekshav Klum if he'd been in a, a, a different generation. Now, of course, the, 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 famous, um, uh, opinion is, is the latter one, right? Uh, the Darshim Lignai, the relativization, uh, the reading down of the righteousness of Noach, uh, the position of Rashi, and on some level the dominant position amongst the Deot, uh, in Chazal. And uh, kind of the interesting question uh, I would raise is, is this merely drash, based upon the word of, of Dorotav? Uh, is this some sort of creative reading of the Dorotav terminology? Uh, is it unconnected to the pshat whatsoever? Or maybe perhaps there's some sort of pshat, uh, simple uh, reading of the psukim, or some way of reading the psukim that justifies this kind of relativization uh, of, of the righteousness uh, of Noach. In addition, uh, not just the question of the relativization uh, of the righteousness of Noach, is this a pshak, can this be justified, Is that's one question, but also the very, very particular idea of, of reading down. Uh, and, and let me kind of explain what I what I mean by this. In general, uh, often you find Chazal doing creative work with various characterizations in, in Tanakh. Uh, and uh, they'll say all kinds of things about this one committed that sin, and that one committed that sin, or this one didn't commit that sin, or that one didn't commit that sin, that seems to be, uh, without citing examples right now. Uh, and, and often we're struck by, well, how can they do this? But at the same time, uh, there's often a kind of consistency or a pattern. Uh, the heroes, such as Yaakov Avinu, David HaMelech, are read up. Uh, their sins are read away. Uh, additional z'chuyot, uh, Tfilot and and Talmud Chacham status are attributed to them, uh, while the the non heroes, the anti heroes, the villains, uh, the goats of Tanakh, are read down. Uh, for example, Esav, Yishmael, etc. 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 And here we have something that seems to kind of break that pattern. That we would certainly think that Naach the ist sadiq tamim He is one of the great heroes, as Ramban argued. Uh, he is objectively righteous, he is purely righteous, he is innocent, he is saved, his family is saved, the world is saved, God's project is saved because of him, and yet here we find Chazal coming along and reading down uh, Noach in this dominant day, which is chosen by Rashi. And the question isn't just about can we justify this mitzad from the side or from uh, a reading of the simple verses or from the psukim themselves, which is one question. But also the very notion of reading down noach is striking and on some level should uh, strike us as counterintuitive. And that's a kind of second problem or second issue I'd like to raise. And a third problem, which is way beyond, uh, well, uh, a, fir- a, a full development of the problem is a bit beyond the scope of our discussion today. Um, Rashi is based on a series of, of Midrashim. And interestingly enough, uh, when Rashi says, oh, if he'd been in the door of X he would have been nekshav klum. He would have been considered nothing. Does anybody remember who fills into that X-box? Remember what Rashi said? If he'd been the door of Avraham. <laughs> uh, interestingly enough, most of the midrashim that Rashi is based upon, the Rabba, and you can look at it at your daf Mekarot here in a few places, uh, they don't compare uh, Noach to Avraham. They compare Noach to Moshe. If he'd been the door of Moshe, he would be nekshav klum. Uh, or if he'd been the door of Shmuel, he would have been nechshav Klum. Now I have no idea uh why these Midrashim choose uh Moshe and Shmuel as oh if he'd been in their door he would have been uh considered nothing. But that is the dominant motif uh in many of the Midrashim. Interesting enough, there's one Midrashim, Midrash Tanchuma, also found here somewhere in your Daf Mukarot, which we're not going to look at, who does have the Avram citation, and Rashi is based upon uh the Avram citation. Uh and if you're interested, it's actually Makor number six, it's source number six on the sheet which is the Midrash Tanchum with the Avram citation. So my question, or my third question, is not just, one, the very notion of relativizing uh, the Tzidkot of Noach, uh, two, uh, the seemingly counterintuitive reading down uh, of Noach, but three, the specific comparison to the generation of Avraham as a way to relativize and read down uh, the uh, tzitkot, the righteousness of Noach, is also something I think is intriguing based upon, if we had time, a, a, a broader and more comprehensive uh, study of all of the midrashim that serve the basis for the Rashi uh, approach. So these are kind of the issues I would like to discuss at uh, at least at this and think of this as the first part of the, of the Shi'or. Um, now, in point of fact, uh, and this might be something that some of you might be aware of, I believe that if we look at the Psukim carefully, uh, there are many interesting connections between the Noach uh, flood Mabul story and Avraham Avinu and the Avraham story. Uh, and I think we can see this uh, by just taking a look at the very first pasuk that I looked at uh, a moment ago. Let's take a look uh, at source number one again. Uh pasuk Pasuktet says uh, as follows: Eile toldot Noach, Noach ish tamim. Pardon me. Eile toldot Noach, Noach ish tzaddik, tamim haya b'dorotav etelkim etalech Noach. Now the chart here tells us something else besides Noach's simple righteousness, besides being a tzaddik, also he was tamim. And it's et that he walked in the ways of God. Well, if you think about it, there's another character in Sefer of Reshed who is described as Tamim, or required to be Tamim, and also to walk in the ways of God. And that, of course, is Abraham Avinu. Uh, take a look in Perak Yud Zion, uh, which is found here in source number seven. The beginning of Perak Yud Zion, which is the story of Brit Milah. In Perak Yud Zion, Pasik Aleph says as follows. He was 99 years old ani I am shakai, Now here it's a, in the command formulation, it's an imperative, and it's designed for the future. It's not vis-à-vis the past. right? In the case of Noach, it's et elokim hitalek noach. right? He was tamim, and he walked in the ways of God. Here it's a command vis-à-vis the future, ani shakai l'fanai walk in the ways of God and be whole. But uh, the point being, is there's an obvious parallel between Noah on the one hand and Avram on the one hand on the other hand, that both of them are obviously righteous men uh, that are that walk in the ways of God and are Tamim. And that's an interesting uh, point. Now if we think about it and we progress a little bit through the story of the Mabul and through the Noach story, I think there are quite a few other parallels uh, between the story of Noah and the flood on the one hand, And the story of Avraham on the other hand. Well, what do I have in mind? What I have in mind is let's go back to source number one again and let's continue on a bit in the psukim, in the verses, and and see what happens. Let's let's jump ahead to Pasikir Aleph in source number one, Paragvah Pasikir Aleph. Uh, the world was corrupted, or even perhaps already in some way, sense destroyed, morally destroyed, or perhaps let's translate as corrupted for the moment. Uh, and the world was full of... Hamas? How would we translate that? Yeah, it's unpleasant, no matter what it is. Armed robbery, violence. The word Hamas biblically means violence and... <laughs> uh, we go ahead a bit further uh, Hashem again refers to this idea uh, that you know Noah is surrounded by a corrupt society uh, Noah stands over and against vis a corrupt society. so if we think about it that's not just true in the case of Noah that's also true in the case of Abraham that there's a kind of corrupt society that he stands over and against and uh, take a look for the moment in source number seven. Uh, on your, pardon me, source number eight, uh, in Reishit Perik Yilchet Kaf. Hashem says to Avraham as follows, uh, source number eight, Yirchet Kaf. Vayem Hashem Zakat Stom Vamurah, uh, the, uh, cry or the horror or the cry of the oppressed in Stom Vamurah, Ki Rabbah, it is great, Vachatatam, It is very heavy. Uh, I'm going to go check it out. And of course, God concludes that things are quite bad uh, for the Stomites. Now, the the parallel besides just the evil context or the evil society that surrounds or stands over and against both of these righteous men, uh, there are deeper parallels. The problem in the case of Durham Abul is Hamas, which is violence or moral corruption, uh, also, kind of sexual corruption. And of course, you don't need to think too hard about the Stone narrative, uh, to think of the sexual corruption, uh, send out your guests, no, I'll send my daughters, uh, or to think about the, the violence done to guests that Chazal elaborate upon in their Makorot in terms of understanding Stone. And the idea is that Doram and Stone also stand in parallel to each other on some plane, uh, as a kind of evil society, uh, that surrounds the tzaddik, the righteous man, that's Holech Tamim, in the ways of God. Now, in both cases, what does God decide to do? In both cases, God decides to destroy the evil society, and the Chumash, uh, indicates this with a very particular verb in both cases. Take a look back in, uh, Perak, uh, Vav, in source number one. Uh, we take a look, uh, there. Uh God's response to Pasuk yud which was It was corrupted or destroyed, jumped down to Pasuk uh, yud in that very same source. Vav Pasuk yud a few lines later. And it says as follows, it so God declares His intention to destroy midah uh, midah in the case of the Dor the evil society. The very same language and concept appears in the story of Avraham and Stone uh, as well. Take a look uh, on your source sheet uh, in source number eight uh, in pasuk uh, kafchet, pasuk kafchet chapter 18, verse 28, during the course of Abraham's Tfilah, Abraham's prayer, says as follows, Maybe there'll be five missing from the 50. So destruction is what's on the table uh, in the case of stone, just like as in the case of Durham Now I apologize, I don't have this on the Daf Karot, that is my negligence, but if any of you have a Tanakh, and if you can open up to Perak Yud Tet uh, Pasuk Yud Gimel uh, In Perak Yud Tet Pasuk Yud Gimel The Malachim say to load Who else do you have here? Your other family members Your your sons Your son-in-laws Whatever you've got Right? And, and get them out of here Why? Pasuk Yud Gimel Ki mashchitim Anatnu Etamakom Azeh Ki gadlat Tzakhatam Et p'nei Hashem Vayishacheno Hashem Leshachata Get everybody out Because we're going to Destroy the place And the word Shachet Appears another two times so here we have certainly a third parallel between the two stories, which is not just, one, the righteous man who walks in the ways of God and is tamim, not just two, the all-encompassing evil society uh, that surrounds, but three, God's intention to destroy the evil society is signified by the shachet verb uh, in both stories. A fourth parallel uh, between the two stories is that the destruction is visited uh, upon uh, the two societies in the exact same way. Now, wait a second. That's obviously a ridiculous comment because water and fire and brimstone are exactly opposites of each other. It might have matter water would extinguish fire and brimstone or the fire and brimstone would evaporate the water. They, they just, they aren't the same. They're opposites. But indeed, on some plane, uh, they might be uh, the same. Uh, and let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, we, take, we go back for the moment to uh, uh, source... Uh, one, uh, for the moment, um, in Perak, no, pardon me, in source two, in Bracious Perak Zion, uh, Pasik we have the following. Kidamim od Shiva, Perak Zion Pasik in source number two. Kidamim od Shiva Anochi Mamtir ala arts arbeim yom varbeim laila umachiti et kolheya kumashur siti mael kuneha dama. In another seven days, God says, I'm going to Mamtir. I'm going to cause to rain onto the earth for forty days and forty nights. Uh, and I'm gonna erase everything that I made from upon the ground. Okay, so, uh, that makes perfect sense. Mamtir, the word dew, or coming down from heaven, it's, connect, it has a connotation of, of rain and water, and it's 40 days and 40 nights of mabul, so it all makes perfect sense. Strikingly enough, uh, the very same phrase appears in the, uh, story of stone. Uh, take a look in Pasuk, uh, Parakutet Pasuk Kafdalid, which is source number nine on your Daf Krot, on your sheet. Source number nine says in Brahish pray ket pasakafdale, Vashem, himtir, al stom va al amurah, gafrit veesh me eit Min minhashamayem. Turns out that him, the destruction comes about in the same way with the same verb through matar. And apparently, matah doesn't mean do. Matah means to cause something to come down from the heavens. And they're one of two things. Precipitation, right? You can have one of two things precipitate, so to speak, from the heavens. If we, if we for the moment, ignore the scientific meaning of the term precipitation. Uh, very good, thank you. Which is, God causes something to come down from the heavens. In the case of the mabul, it's water. And in the case of stone, it's ve'ish. But the very destruction itself is the same. And a fifth parallel, although there are many others, uh, and about my favorite is in both cases there is someone or some group that is saved from the deluge, from the catastrophe, from the destruction, uh, from uh, from the disaster. Uh, of course, in the story of uh, Noah, it is Noah and his family uh, that is saved. Now, how do we know that it is Noah uh, and his family uh, that is saved? Uh, take a look uh, in uh in source number one, in Perek Vav, pasuk uh, Yudchet. Perek Vav pasuk Yudchet says as follows: Vakimoti um, et itach uvata elateva ata uvanecha vishtecha uneshe vanecha itach. And I will establish my covenant with you. You'll come into the teva, you and your sons, and your wife, and the wives of your children. So the whole family is going to be saved from the destruction, from the is going to be rescued from the destruction, the disaster, the catastrophe. Uh, and it's not just that they're going to be to be saved a single family is going to be saved. But also the Torah goes out of the way to tell us that there's an element of of zchira, of remembrance, which often connotes God's mercy. God remembers this family and he protects them and saves them. And if you take a look for the moment, uh just jump ahead a bit further uh, to uh source number uh 10 uh, we have there in source number 10 uh, so God remembers the single family he remembers the righteous, he the righteous man he saves the righteous man he saves the righteous man's family and that's what's saved from uh, the destruction and that's kind of the fifth element of the parallel of the of the paradigm here well what about in the case of stone uh, is there a single family that is saved from destruction that is remembered by God? And the answer is, yes, there is. How do we know that it is originally intended that Lot's entire family should be saved? Well, I take you back for the moment, and here it's not on the, uh, page, uh, in Sefer Breshit, in Perek Yud Chet, Pasuk Yud Bet, in chapter 18, verse 12, or those of you who have a Tanakh, and I'll read it, it says as follows. Vayemor and Elot, the, the Malachim, the angels, the men, said to Lot, Ah, Od It's Perek Yitet. I'm sorry, I'm having a bit of a problem with my eyes today. Perek Pasak Pasuk Yitbet says as follows. V'yomoran Hashem Elot, od po chatan, your son-in-law, uvanecha uvnotacha, v'cholash al-acha ba'ir hotzei minamakom. Ki ma shchitim Take everybody out. You know, so it's intended to be a single family that's saved. Of course, as you well know, Lot's wife doesn't make it. His son-in-law think thinks it's a big joke. And of course, only his daughters make it. Uh, which we'll get to that in a few moments. Uh, but ideally, uh, a single family is meant to be saved from the destruction, from the Mahapecha, from from the disaster, and they're remembered. There's memory as well uh, in in the Lot story. Take a look in uh, source number uh, nine, source number nine in Parakutet Pasuk uh which says as follows. When God destroyed the cities of the plain, so there it is. There's the memory. God remembers the righteous. He remembers Abraham, uh, and he sends Lot and his entire family from the Ma'pecha. And this is the uh, this is the fifth element of the parallel. So to just briefly review some of the points we made, here, it turns out there's a striking. Biblical parallel between the story of Noach and the flood on the one hand, and the story of Abraham and Stone on the other hand, and there are at least five elements uh, of this parallel that we can note: one, uh, the righteous man who walks in the ways of God and is tamim; two, the surrounding evil society; three, uh, God's intention to destroy la Hashkit. four, uh, the means of destruction which is matar in both cases. And five, the saving of a single family from its destruction, which is connoted with the notion of memory, the remembering of the righteous man and the saving of a family by virtue of the righteous man. And these are the parallels. So by this point, we might no longer really wonder why some Midrashim, why Rashi, thinks that we should read the Noah flood narrative in light of the Abraham story. If we're looking for a foil or we're looking for someone to compare uh, Noah too, then obviously uh, then abraham would 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 be the candidate, and that's just kind of a on the side point or a Darrah Aga point at this point. but you know what what's really the the point of this kind of parallel? I mean does the Torah just really you know like to play these games with us and and uh, you know it's kind of a stylistic flourish. Look, I could tell the same story with all kinds of echoes and illusions. Well, I think not. I think we're supposed to we're supposed to get something here. and often many have argued. Uh, that one of the things you're supposed to do is compare the status of the different characters in these kinds of parallel stories. And then you're, so to speak, to steal some language from Chazal, you're Doresh or your are Doresh uh, right? And we might say, at first glance, uh, just to kind of throw something out there, that the purpose of the parallel is to highlight a difference between Noach and Lot. Now, now why do I argue this? Because let's compare the fifth element of the parallel uh for the moment uh, in the fifth element uh of the parallel you have this Uh god remembers noah right and he saves his entire family right so god remembers the righteous man and he saves him because of that right now let's take a look uh in the other side in the in the lot uh stone abraham side of things on that fifth element of parallel and i'll read the pasuk again for you it's in source number nine. It's Bereshit uh, Perikyotet Pasuk Kaftet, which says as follows. It's 1929. Now, by the way, who should be remembered here? Yeah, you would think so, right? But no. The righteous man here is Avraham. He's the Tzaddik, he's the Tamim. The, the family or the individual who saved is Lot. Lot is not just subject. Uh, Lot is not subject; he's object, right? He's just the object that saved the family uh, that saved for the sake of the righteous man Abraham, who's remembered. As opposed to Noah, Noah is saved it's his own righteousness. It's vayiskar lokimet Noah. God remembers Noah and he saves Noah and his entire family. So Noah is the righteous man who saved by virtue of his own righteousness, as opposed to Lot who is the non-righteous man who is saved not by virtue of his righteousness, but merely as object, uh, a dear object to Avraham, who occupies the place of the righteous man's story uh, in the uh, Avraham Stone Lot version uh, of the model of the paradigm. So one way to understand the parallel here would be just to kind of be doresh, Lot Lignai, and Noach l'shevach, that Noach is not Lot. Noach is saved by virtue of his own righteousness. And the parallel could be viewed as somewhat supporting the approach of Ramban, uh, that uh, Noach is indeed a righteous man. And look, compare it to the Lot story, you'll see how, uh, in fact, Noach is righteous, and that would be one way to go. Except, as we move along in the story, there's in fact a, I would call it a, a sixth element to the parallel, or another stage, uh, which I think makes this first reading of the parallel rather untenable. Uh, and would push us in a different direction as to how to read the, the parallel. And let me explain what I mean by this. We think about this logically on some plane. There are kind of numerous logical features uh, or levels uh, or stages of the parallel that we can pick out. Stage one is the righteous man stage. Stage two, uh, let's call this the uh, destruction stage. Right. Stage three is the rescue stage, right? Uh, well, you know, there's a stage four. The stage four, I will call this, I don't know what to call it, let's call it aftermath, okay? Let's call it stage four aftermath. Now, we all know how it is, or we should remember how it is that Lot uh, winds up. How, how does Lot wind up? Well, let's go back to source number nine and let's pick it up in Parak uh Pasuk for the moment. Uh, the end of Lot. By Lot Mitzohar, by Bahar, Ushnev and and he went up and he, he dwelt in a, in the mountain with his two daughters. They were all that was left. So he went into this cave. He retreats into the cave. Who, and Otav? He and his two daughters. Um Pasiglam, it's interesting why they go into a cave, uh, because, you know, you could have built a house, you could have, you could have had a tent, right? And it's, you know, it wouldn't seem to be a problem, but he went into a cave. Pasiglam and Aleph. There's no one left. Their whole world consists of stone, and stone has been destroyed, so there's nothing left, the whole world has been destroyed from their perspective, right? It must be that the whole world was destroyed, right? Let's get him drunk, we'll sleep with him, and then we'll have children. That seems like a good idea. Uh, they gave him wine, and so on and so forth. Lot winds up drunk, uh, in a cave, uh, effectively being taken sexual advantage of by his own children. Uh, that's the end uh, of Lot. Uh, and, and, uh, he's drunk, he's in the cave, uh, I would assume, uh, he's probably not wearing any clothes. Uh, and he's been taken sexual advantage of by his children at their initiative. Uh, and this is a very sad, uh, end, uh, for Lot, one who perhaps started out, uh, as a student of Avraham or somewhat Avraham-like, but as the narrative of the Torah continues on through Prokim Yudcher <laughs> and Yutet, Lot reaches quite a sad end. Now, strikingly, uh, and this might be perhaps the slightly depressing point of the Shi'ura, uh, let's go back to, uh, the parallel or stage four, uh, of the model here, which is the aftermath of uh, of Noach. And take a look uh, in uh Tet, Pasuk in source number 11, which says as follows. Uh Tet, uh, Pasuk Noach ish Adama, Uh Noah became a man of the ground and he planted a vineyard. Pasuk uh, He drank of the wine. It's taken a while, but the first thing he did was he planted that vineyard. He drank of the wine Vayishkar. He became drunk. Vayitkal b'toch ola, he became unclothed. He's not wearing his clothes. Pasuk uh, kapet cham aviv kanan et ervat aviv, and cham, the father of Kanan, saw the Erva. The nakedness of his father, when he told his brothers, come, come. And they treated him with the proper dignity, they covered him up, the brothers didn't participate or enjoy so much exactly what it was that Cham slash Kanan had suggested or done. And take a look at and he woke up and he knew what his younger son had done to him, which seems to imply it's unclear what happened here, right? Is it just seeing? Is it just that kind of disgrace? Uh, is it more? Is there an action here done by Ham slash Canaan? Chazal have numerous dayot uh, that relate to the possibility of castration uh, or actual physical relations. Uh, but either way, what happens here to Noah at the end is he is drunk, he is unclothed, and he is taken sexual advantage of, or abused in some way sexually, by his own children. And this is exactly like the end of Lot. Uh, in other words, in uh in the aftermath aspect of the parallel, in that logical stage, there's a direct one to one correspondence more or less between uh Lot and Noah, and this is striking. Uh here is the righteous man uh who by virtue of his righteousness he was saved His family was saved. The world was saved. God's project was saved. And the end of the day, he reaches the same destination as Lot, who was no more than just the object uh, of rescue due to Avraham's righteousness. So as we move through the parallel, effectively, Noach moves from the Avraham role. And by the time we get to the end, he's in whose place? He's in the Lot role. So in other words, this is not a case where we should be doresh noach l'shevach. If eventually he winds up in the lot roll, we could say that the proper way to go with the parallel is uh, to be doresh noach uh, Lignai. And I would argue that much of what I have suggested here is the underlying tashtit, the foundation, or what undergirds the famous de'ah of Chazal found in Rashi, that we relativize the tzitkot of noach, we compare him to Avraham, and we say that if he had been in the door of Avraham, we would have been Nekhshav we would have been considered nothing. Because effectively what Chazal do here is they read what we call hermeneutically, meaning they read back from the end, uh, to the beginning. Or, uh, uh, Huvrar tchilato al-Basis sofo. Uh, retroactively we realize who and what Noah has been all along and in that very first drash found in Rashi at the beginning of the story, we take the end of Noah and we bring it back to the beginning and we compare him to Abraham. we say his, tzidkut, his righteousness is relative if he would have been in the generation of Abraham, he would have been considered klum and I think, to some extent, hopefully uh, uh, although I've created other problems I might have resolved the first issue I raised in the Shior which is the relativation, of the Tzitkot of Noth, the comparison to Abraham, and the, and the reading down. This brings us, I think, to perhaps uh, the next part, uh, or the second half of the Shior, uh, which might be considered the more interesting issue on some plane. Uh, hopefully the first issue was interesting as well. How did this happen? Or how, how can this happen? On some plane, Ramban is correct. Uh, Noach was a tzaddik and Noach was a righteous man. And how was it uh, that over time things deteriorated uh, and he and he reached the stage of uh, of Lot? And that's kind of what I would like to turn our attention to uh, in the second part uh, of the shiur. How is this kind of thing uh, possible? Um, I'm aware of of three theories uh, as to how to explain the deterioration uh, or the decay uh, or the Sad end uh, of Noach here uh, in the Chumash. Um, one theory, uh, and this is already noted by Ramban what happened here. Ramban here, uh, in, uh, Perek Chet, uh, or uh, on the story, or in his comments on the story of, uh, Noach in the, in the tent, uh, of Shem, of, of Cham and Avi Kenan, Rahman has a long discourse about the evils of, of wine. Uh, if you take a look in, um, uh, again, in, uh, Pasuk, uh, in source number 11, in Parak Tet, uh, Pasuk Kaf Aleph, which says as follows, Ahalo. Uh, he drank of the wine. The first thing he did was he planted the vineyard, he drank of the wine. So, debauchery, uh love of wine. Even the greatest man uh, can fall because of desire and love of wine. And uh, the way Ramban phrases it is that the tzaddik, that the world was saved because of him. He too fell prey to the evil of wine, and look what happened to him because of it. So it's all because of the drink. Uh, this is this is Ramban's. Pardon? Bad for yeah, Rashi can write that it would be bad for business. Okay, that, that's Ramban's uh, Ramban's approach. Uh, now, a, 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 a second theory, uh, many years ago I, somehow or another, uh, what, some version of what, uh, uh, I am about to teach you was published, uh, in Macquarie Shone, uh, and someone wrote a response, um, in the Musaf Shabbat where he told me, where he claimed that he liked the article, but he presented an alternative theory, uh, to my theory, which is a theory I've heard, oh, the alternative is a theory I've heard for many over the years, and that can be summed up in one word. Trauma. Uh, or post-trauma? Uh, let us think about uh, Noah's life uh, for the moment, right? Uh, he is a man uh, who survives catastrophe, disaster, literally the destruction of the world and everything uh, he knew. Is it any surprise that he's traumatized? Uh, and if we want to put uh, the modern psychological trauma theory uh, together with the drink theory, uh, then we're almost completely there, right? In other words, is it any surprise that he takes refuge in the bottle uh, given the trauma uh, that he's endured, right? Uh, he is the fragile survivor of disaster uh, and he does not have the wherewithal uh, to cope and it's the trauma... Uh, that causes maybe even the drinking or maybe not the drinking. You can think of as an independent theory as a, as a kind of Mishulav or integrated theory, as a kind of modern spin or gloss or improvement of the Ramban. And this would also explain uh, what happens to Noah. Now, I certainly uh, do not denigrate this possibility. I think it is a good, interesting idea. It's a bit too psychological uh, for my taste. Uh, and I would like to try to uh, present a third option, uh, a different way to explain uh, the the decay of Noach, something that might emerge in some ways from the, the Chumash uh, that might take us back to the topic of uh, Noach's righteousness. My, my perspective is that I think, perhaps, if we look at uh, exactly how the Torah defines Noach's righteousness, if we look more deeply uh, at the story here, maybe again, expand a bit upon the comparison to Avram and Stom, if we have a stronger sense of Noach's righteousness, we might be able to figure out Uh, perhaps on some level what goes wrong. Uh, So uh, with the time remaining, hopefully we'll kind of begin to elucidate or elaborate another theory, something broader about Noah's righteousness, the two stories of the flood, and a kind of theme that develops throughout the the narrative, throughout the story here. So to begin, let's go back to the beginning uh, and, and Noah's righteousness. Let's go back to source number one. Um and let's pick it up there for the moment again. Okay, in source number 1, Parak Vav Pasuk uh Tet. Okay. Avetot Noach. Noach isht tzadik tamim haye beTorah et lo kima talah Noach. So Noah was Noach was, was a righteous man. Uh, or again, in Parak Zein Pasuk Aleph in source number 2, vayam shim lenoach ba talav chobed chatevaki tzadik lofnay bedor hazah. Noach is a tzadik, he's a righteous man. What does his tzidkut consist of? Uh, the truth is, we don't really know. The uh, Chumash doesn't really tell us, right? Or it seems not to tell us. And you might say, okay, well, he's different than those surrounding him, right? Those surrounding him engage in Hamas. So he doesn't do Hamas. He doesn't engage in armed violence. Uh, they are perhaps sexually corrupt. He is not corrupt. So there's no moral or sexual corruption about Noah, and that is what his righteousness consists of, and that is certainly one possibility. However, over time I've become convinced that the Torah gives us a crucial hint uh, in a very interesting way as to what the righteousness of Noah uh, consists of. Uh, there's a very particular phrase that appears not once, not twice, not three times in the Chumash about Noah, but a kind of recurring refrain. Uh, that appears. And the first time it appears, take a look um, in source number one. Uh, let's pick it up for the moment in Pasuk yud Uh And there it says as follows, l'cha atse kinim So you make this really big boat, right? It's got three floors, it's this long, it's this wide, and you gather up all the animals and all the food, and and it takes like a long time, right? Uh, I don't know, it took 120 days, 120 years. It took some really long time. It's really big and he's one guy uh, and he probably didn't have a work crew, he didn't have any technology, he built it by hand. Uh, you know, it was a massive undertaking. At the very end uh, of this segment of instructions, we get a very interesting Pasuk, Parag Vav Pasuk uh chapter 6, verse 22, says as follows, And Noah did exactly as God commanded him. Now, in fact, this notion of tzivuy, of commandment, or listening to commandment, is kind of a refrain in the Noah story. And just for now, one other place where it appears, uh, take a look in source number two, in Paragzayin, Pasuk He, uh, at the end there, vayas, noach, achalash, tzivah, Hashem, and it appears a couple of times later on. And some have argued that you could divide the overall mabul narrative into many sections, and almost at the end of every section, you have this refrain of Vayas Noach HaKhalosha or the Tzivui term. So Noach does what God commands him. Okay. Great. Big deal. I mean, really, God appears to you, says, do this. Uh, so, of course, you're going to do it. Uh, and, and God tells you, and, and, and you know what? The stakes are really, really great. Uh, If you don't do this, you're going to die, your family's going to die, and humanity's going to be destroyed. So you would think, you know, simple logic, uh, you know, if God threatens you with destruction of everything and gives you a task explicitly, you're going to do it. It's it's really a bit of a no-brainer on on some plane, uh, one might say. Uh, However, when we think about it, in the context of human history, or in the context of the first 11 prakim of Sefer Bereshit, there is nothing at all simple or simplistic or obvious about following Tzivuy Hashem, about following the command of God. Uh, and I'd like to go back to the first place where the word Tzivuy, where the, the verb Mitzaveh appears in the Chumash. Take a look for the moment in source number 10, uh, pardon me, source number 12. Uh, back when mankind is first created in the story of Gan Eden, in Perek Bet Pasik Tetvav, Pasik Tet Zion, we have as follows. God commanded him, I want you to eat from all the fruit of the, uh, all the fruit trees of the garden. Uh, but one caveat. There's one tree that eats tovera. you can't eat from that. A, eat from all of them. B, not from that one. The day you eat from it, you're gonna die. Now, here, let's think about this for the moment. Uh God says I you can do whatever you want. Mashallah. You can eat from all the trees, right? I command you to do whatever you want. You're commanded to do whatever you want. But there's one tree that you can't uh eat from. There's a single instance. And by the way, the stakes are really really high. Uh because if you uh if you eat from that particular tree, the one that you aren't supposed to, and you can eat from all the others, but that what you're going to die. So really really don't, so it's an explicit command from God. The stakes are incredibly high. And the task is incredibly minor, right? Now, let's compare that uh, to the story of the Mabul. It's, it's the same but different, right? Explicit uh, command from God. The stakes are really, really high, life and death. The task is massive, right? It's the gigantic boat. Uh, it's gathering all the produce. It's gathering all the animals. It's going into the thing for who knows how long and living with the animals, and the food, it's not, not a pleasant thing to contemplate, right? But uh, the task is, ma- Noach accomplishes it. The point I'm trying to make uh, is that the history of humanity is the inability, uh, pre-Noach, is the inability to listen to tzivuy Hashem. Even if the task is minor, even if the command is explicit, and even if the stakes are very, very great, mankind cannot listen to tzivuy Hashem. In parallel, God appears to Cain and says, just don't kill your brother. What does Cain do? Kills his brother. What does mankind do? They eat from the tree, right? Mankind is unable, incapable of obedience to the divine command. Why? I don't know. Uh, But mankind is simply incapable because of desire, because of rebelliousness, is not able to be obedient to the Tzivu Yashem until Noach. Noach is different, and this is the way that Noach is different from everybody who has come before him that he can uh, uh, be obedient to the Tzibu Yashem. He is obedient to the Tzibu Yashem. And no matter how big the boat, how long the task, how difficult, uh, how trying... Vayas, Noach, Chalash, Tziv, Hashem. Noach does exactly as God commanded him over and over and over. Noach is makshiv to the Tzivoi. And I would argue, from a literary perspective, this is what the Tzitkut, what the righteousness of Noach consists of, which is being the first and the only to listen to Tzivoi Hashem, his obedience to Tzivoi Hashem. And this is why he deserves to be saved. Uh, um okay. Well, how does that help us uh understand what happens to Noah uh later on? I'd like to argue that this notion of Noah's obedience to Sivui Hashem has to be considered or parsed over and against exactly what the Sivui is. And this brings me to the latter part uh, of my title. Uh, I entitled the Shiur uh and the two stories of the flood. Uh I'd like to do is move away from the moment, for the moment from the, uh, the discussion of Noach's tzitkot, his obedience, and think about not so much his response to the tzivoy, but the contents of the tzivoy. What exactly is it that Noach is commanded uh, from an overall or from a larger perspective? And I, uh, I'll explain what I mean as we move along. Uh, but let's begin this segment by thinking about the fact that, if you ever think about it, much of the flood narrative, uh, the story of Mabul, Feels a bit repetitive, uh, and, uh, you know, it kind of goes on. It seems to repeat itself over and over. Let me, let's look at a few examples of this. Let me explain what I mean by this. Let's pick it up for the moment in Perek Zion, uh, Pasuk Aleph in source number two. And what we're going to do is we're going to think about Perek Zion Pasuk Aleph, which comes immediately after source number one in the Chumash, uh, in light of what we know, uh, from, well, what do we, what do we know? Noah is a tzaddik, and, and he's supposed to gather this and gather that and go into Tevah. Let's pick up in Parak Zayin, Pasuk Aleph for the moment. Uh, source number two says as follows. noach is a tzaddik. Parak Zayin, Pasuk Aleph says. Did we know that already? Yeah, we knew that. Go back to uh, Parak Vav, Pasuk Tet. source number one. So the Torah tells us that, that Noach was a tzaddik. Okay, we go on. Pasik Bet. Mikola be torah, tikach, and your family's gonna be saved. We knew that already also, right? Uh, Bet. Mikola be torah, tikach, ha-Chashivash, Take animals, right? Um, have we already been told previously that Noah is supposed to take the animals? Yeah, of course. Uh, take a look in Perek Vav, Pasik Yitet in source number one. You're supposed to take the animals with you, right? So one, uh, he's, he's righteous. We knew that already. Two, uh, his family's gonna be saved, you knew that already. Three, uh, take the animals, uh, we knew that already. Uh, let's go on, let's jump down to, uh, Pasuk Dalid, uh, verse four, uh, in source number two. Okay, I'm gonna destroy the world. Well, did we know that already? Yeah, we knew that already. You could, you could randomly pick a Pasuk in back in source number one, for example, uh, in Pasuk uh, Yudzayin. I'm going to destroy the world. And finally, of course, at the end of source number two in Perekh Zayin Pasukai, Noach did everything God commanded him. Well, we know that already as well, that Noach is obedient to the command of God. If we go back to Vav Kaf in source number one, the last verse, the last Pasuk, V'yas Noach So, if you look at Perg Zion it seems to give us no new information. One, Noah is a Tzadik? We knew that. Two, uh, his family is going to be saved? We knew that. Three, take the animals? We knew that. Four, God's going to destroy the world? We knew that. Five, Noah does exactly as God commanded him? Uh, we knew that. The question is, what do we do with this kind of... Uh, uh, repetition, uh, or kind of lack of new information. And of course, it's not just a problem here, but it's a problem, uh, in many places, uh, in the, in the Chumash. So one approach, and um, that's been taken over the years, uh, an approach that perhaps has its roots in Chazal, uh, that can be very much attributed to the Italian Bible scholar Umberto Casuto, uh, the notion of the style of the Torah as a kind of epic unfolding. Often, certain stories of the Torah are told in this kind of epic fashion of an unfolding. So when you unfold something, you do it slowly and gradually, and and you repeat, and you review material, and you add a little bit more, you tell it again, you add a little bit more, you tell it again, you add a little bit more. Uh, And this is a kind of mode of narrative. Uh, And this might be one way uh, to deal with these kinds of repetitive stories in the Torah, to simply say, that's reflective of the the teaching style of the Torah, the kind of epic unfolding, and then one would not make too much uh, of this kind of, of thing. Uh, of course, uh, classic biblical criticism viewed this as reflective of two different documents that uh, stand at the core uh, of the Torah, two different stories, and somehow they both uh, wound up here. Uh, I'm not particularly uh, uh, partial to that approach, But there's a kind of interesting version, interesting modern version, or interesting response, uh, to biblical criticism that does kind of adopt some of that perspective of difference between, uh, two versions. Uh, in, in Hebrew, it's known as Shtay and it's attributed to Rav Mordechai Breuer, Zechronel Levracha, a man who taught in this room for many, many years, uh, way back when when I was a Talmud in Shiva Tarazion. And his claim is that there are two aspects. So when the repetition happens, there are two aspects uh to the story that are being uh, elucidated here. Um and B'Chinot in Hebrew doesn't really uh, two aspects doesn't really capture it. Uh I believe Dr. Zilagaster, Professor Zeligaster of Brandeis University has referred to this as deliberate multivocality, which I think is a wonderful phrase. Uh, deliberate multivocality is the is the style of the Torah. Um, the literary critic uh, Robert Alters referred to this as the montage style of the Torah, of kind of flicking back and forth between different perspectives and different visions. And I, in a, in a Rav Soloveitchikian twist, like to refer to this as a dialectical style of the Torah, moving back and forth, uh, between, uh, different ways to tell a story. Uh, but the kind of, the bottom line of whether you call it Shtabachinot, two aspect, deliberate multivocality, uh, whether you call it uh, montage style, whether you call it dialectical style, the fundamental core idea is the same, that there are two voices, two ideas, two stories, each focusing on a different aspect. And this is something that's very common throughout the Torah. You find this feature in many, many, many stories of the Torah. Now, I believe the Torah uses what I call dialectical style uh, in many different ways. I mean, the constant is the style. The purpose uh, is different. Uh, there can be different purposes uh, in different cases as to why the Torah uses this kind of style. And I think, uh, perhaps, that in this case, the idea is to define two missions for Noah. They're actually, in fact, the story is told twice uh, because it's about defining two missions uh, for Noach. And I like to kind of, and I think it's almost explicit in the language uh, of the of the Chumash. Let's go back to the two sources I was looking at for the moment, Tup Sukim, and try to elucidate or identify what might be these two missions of Noah. Take a look in source number one, uh, let's pick it up in Pasit Kaf for the moment. May uh, no, and let's, actually let's take a look at, uh, source number, yeah, source number one for the moment. Uh, Pasuk Kaf says as follows, uh, Perek, uh, Vav Pasit Kaf. The term here is Lachayot. And we're going to translate that as to survive. The point of going to Teva is to stay alive. Uh, period. That's the point of the first panel, the first story, Perek Vav. Now, take a look uh, in source number two for the moment. Uh, in uh, Pasuk Gimel. Perek Zayin, Pasuk Gimel says as follows, <laughs> kol colorarts it's not just la uh, to survive it's to how do we translate it to repopulate the world uh to to live afterwards it's not just avoidance of negative, right? sur it's asetov. It's not just about the past, surviving the past. It's about orientation towards the future. And the way I've kind of translated this colloquially, it's not just about surviving the disaster. It's about rebuilding and reviving the world afterwards. It's the mission of revival as opposed to the mission of mere survival. Uh, these are the two different missions of Noah. And many of the differences between the two stories can be accounted for this way. Many have made much hay of the Shem Elohim, Shem Havaya, difference between the two stories. Elohim, the controlling force of the world who created the world in Perak Aleph uh, of Breshet, he's upset about the downfall and the, the destruction of his handiwork, so he wants a relic, almost a museum piece. Something should survive uh, a human being, a family, two of each animal. Something which is symbolic of the world that was uh, should survive, but, in, so to speak, story two, or aspect two, the revival mission is Shem Havaya, who's interested in the future, in relationship and creation of the world anew, and therefore, what else? Seven animals as opposed to two. Because why? Uh, seven animals are eventually used for carbonate. Revived a revived and different world, uh, which has more tahar animals in it that I use for karbonot, is a better world than the world that was, and so on and so forth. And many of the differences between the two stories, some are famous, some are less famous, can be accounted for by this survival and revival distinction. How does Noach Kato, Noach and his righteousness, manage with these two missions? Well, regarding mission one, the mission of survival we already know how Noach fares. Noach fares incredibly well. Noach, the obedient Sadiq, no matter how big the boat, no matter how Herculean the task, no matter how many animals, no matter how much time in the teva, he does Kashet tzivoh Hashem exactly as God commands him and regards survival. Noam perform, Noach per- per- performs perfectly. However... What about the second mission of Acheyotzera Upney the mission of revival, of remaking the world after the Mabul? I think we already know the answer, uh, but I would like to turn to some very particular Psukim uh and a fascinating comment of a barbanel, uh which I think fits very nicely with the theme I'm about to outline So let's take a look at again when Noah emerges from the Teva, uh, a bit further on in uh actually for the first time in source number uh, 13, uh, for the moment. Okay. Source number 13 says as follows. God commands Noah. Okay. Go out of the Teva, you and your wife and your children and your wives' children. Messages, all the animals take them out. Noach, take them out. uparu So here's the moment. The Mabla is over. It's time to leave. And God commands Noach to leave the Teva. There are, I think, three aspects to the command. One, leave the Teva along with your wife and family. Two, to actively take out the animals uh, from the Teva. Three, everybody, the animals you remake, repopulate, rebuild the world, revive the world. Those are the three aspects uh, to, the, to the command. Now, Noach, his entire essence is the obedient tzaddik. And what we expect when we come to the bitzua, the execution phase of the commandment, we expect Noach's response to be perfect. It should be, but let's take a look at his response. Take a look, Pasigirchet. Vayetzei, Noach. So far, so good. Perfect. Leave the teva, Say say he goes out. Noach uvanav. He leaves with his sons. Ishto and his wife. Unashevanav ito. And his wives, sons of his daughter-in-law, his son's, sons' wives. Now, if we think about this visually, right? We see, what do we see in our mind's eye? Right? We see Noach marching out. Who's next to him? His sons. Not his wife, right? And who's behind them, so to speak, the women, right? It's like there's a mechitza there, right? It's it's like some chassidish simcha, right? Uh, and, and, and he's forward and, and they're they're behind, uh, so to speak, on some on some level. Uh, I probably shouldn't have said that, right? Anyway, uh, <laughs> they're recording this, right? Uh, and 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 then what, now as we go on, right? Uh Yotet Kolach Of Yatsu For those of you who have the grammar, it's a passive tense. They went out uh, by themselves. Noach had no interest. He left the animals way, way behind in the teva and they're in third place on the back of the bus, so to speak, back in the teva. Noach leaves. He's done with them. He and his sons, they're out. The women are behind and the animals are back in the teva. And this is not the picture that the command conjured up. The picture that the command conjured up was Noach and his wife. Families, Noach and his wife, and then his sons and their wives, and Noach bringing out the animals, and pru, is to this kind of revival of the world. In other words, this is where Noach fails. And this point is made by Abarbanel. It's in Abarbanel's comment here. I don't really have time. Uh, but if you take a look, uh, in source number 14, in the second paragraph, uh, there, Abarbanel says, Od He reads the Psukim the way I did. He says the intention of Noach was not to have relations, he and his sons with their wives. there'd be no point, because maybe another Mabul would come. It's fear, it's this, it's that. But Obama reads the Pesukim exactly this way. This is the moment of stiyah, of digression from the divine command. Tzitkud Noach after the Mabul is already no longer Tzitkud Noach. Now the question is why? What has happened to Noach in the in the Teva? So, we can always return to the trauma theory, right? Bef- there's Noach before and Noach after, and now he can't deal with the idea of remaking or repopulating, and he leaves with his sons, which of course uh, is quite foreboding because it foreshadows what happens in the tent with his sons, uh, and all these things are delivered in the Chumash, obviously. Uh, but, so maybe it's just trauma. But I would like to suggest, if we turn back to Abraham and, uh, and Noach, or Noach and Abraham, where we began our shir, maybe to close the circle... Maybe there are different types of righteousness. Uh, there's the righteousness of Noah, the righteousness of obedience, uh, of listening. Uh, it's a righteousness that's between man and God. It's ben adam le Makom. It's a two-place relationship between God and man, uh, between God and Noah. It's vertical. It's the vertical axis. Now, if we think about the parallel that guided us in much of our shiur, I talked about different stages of the parallel. Oh, there's the righteous man stage. There's the destruction stage. There's the rescue stage. There's the aftermath stage. In truth, in the Avram and Lot story, there's a fifth stage. Uh, in between stages one and two, in between uh, uh, righteousness and destruction, there's a fifth stage. I don't know what to call it. Let's call it fight uh, or argument or controversy, right? Uh, it's famous, and you all know this, but it's worthwhile to take a look at the Pesukim just to kind of round things out. Take a look in source number 8 uh, in Pasuk Kafkimel. Uh Parak Pasuk says as follows. Uh, Avram approached, he prayed, and he said, Will you gather up the, the righteous with the evildoer? Passuk kafdal rulayish hamishim tzadikim b'tochayir haftispeh velotisal amakol l'manu hamishim tzadikim shabrikubam. Passuk kafei chalil l'chamei asot kadavarze l'amit tzadikim rasha chas v'chile gad yishdu to kill the righteous along with the evildoers ve'yakatzadik rasha. Avram prays. He prays for kiddush Hashem. He prays for righteousness, for mishpat. He prays for justice. He prays. He prays for mercy. He disagrees with God. He's disobedient. Uh, he won't take no for an answer. He goes on and on and on. And however you map it out, at the end of the day, Avraham prays for stone. Uh, in other words, Abraham's righteousness, his tzikot, is not a two-place relationship of God and man or God and Abraham. It's not solely a vertical relationship that works only on this axis. It is also a three-place relationship that includes God, man, God, Abraham and the world, including the evildoers uh, and the society around him and stone. Uh, it is not just something that operates on the vertical axis. It is also, the horizontal axis is also part of the Tzidkut of Abraham. It's a completely different model of uh, Tzidkut. And I would like to suggest that perhaps this is part of what the Chumash is teaching us here. What happens to Noach? Maybe it's trauma. Maybe it's drink but also it's maybe something that's built into his model of tzitkot, his model of righteousness from the very, very start. The model of righteousness that's pure obedience, that's pure vertical axes, that's just God and man, that can listen to God. It's, it's wonderful. It's amazing. It's a lot better than Adam and Chava and Kayan, and it's unique in the history of humanity, and it's an important contribution. But, in the end of the day, this kind of righteousness that's just about obedience and, and the man-God relationship, the vertical axes it doesn't include the world, it doesn't care about the world, it, it hears about the destruction, it says, yes sir, doesn't pray, goes into the boat, survives. This kind of righteousness is just about survival. This kind of righteousness that doesn't include the world, that doesn't have the three-place relationship or the horizontal axis, is not capable of remaking the world, uh, of reviving the world, because it doesn't really include uh, or care about the world in a certain kind of way. And this almost sad and perhaps somewhat inevitable result of that kind of obedient, two-place relationship righteousness is the trauma, the drinking, the inability to do more than survive and to revive the world. Uh, and that kind of task is only capable or can only be accomplished by the Tzitkot of Avraham, the three-place relationship. Uh, that is the end of my Shiura. I will close with a final thought, uh, as I always like to do, given it's Tishat uh, Yemim, the Nine Days. Uh, the nine days are a time when we think about, uh, destruction, disaster, catastrophe. We also think about, uh, being redeemed from catastrophe, uh, and destruction. We think about surviving. Um, and these are, these are old models, old paradigms that exist in the history of Am Yisrael. I think there are also notions of survival and revival, escaping destruction, rebuilding. For those of us, all of us, I believe, who are Tosh uh, Eretz Yisrael in this time period. These are, of course, also pertinent notions. Uh, we still somewhat live in a post-Holocaust world, but even in our individual lives. It's important to think about not just dealing with difficulty, not just surviving, but doing more. A building of uh that is like the tzikot of Abraham, that has a three-place relationship of God, man, and the world, that also operates on the horizontal axes and is capable of reviving and rebuilding worlds. So... Thank you.